Hey, welcome to the podcast, today's Voices of Conservation Science. And I'm Chris Guy. I'm your host for today's podcast. And this podcast focuses on people doing science that's then used to conserve natural resources. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Today I'm here with Mike McDonald, and he is a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Yeah. How are you doing? Not too bad. It's uh, it's trying to warm up here in Bozeman, um, but I, I guess tomorrow it's supposed to be above freezing, which would be nice. I don't think we've seen that in quite a while. I know. We'll have people walking around in T-shirts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. So I, I grew up in eastern Massachusetts, just a little bit south of Boston. Um, I actually pursued an undergraduate career, uh, undergraduate degree there in Boston at Northeastern University. Um, but I studied criminal justice, which <laughs> there's a good degree to keep you out of trouble. Right? It was, it was, <laughs> I was for, for a while I thought I wanted to be in, in federal law enforcement, mm-hmm. but I, I quickly realized maybe two years into that degree, I realized that that was just not for me. So I figured I should at least finish up because I had gotten pretty deep into it. Um, and then I I moved on with my life. So I moved out west to Wyoming in 2008. And I wish I could tell you that that was to, to pursue some career in ecology, but it really wasn't. I was looking to ski for the most part. <laughs> um, you're not alone in that. Right, absolutely. <laughs> And so you came out here to to Wyoming, and um, to, to ski. And so, what? Why, why did you pick Wyoming? Wyoming. That was, you know, really it was just. It was just looking at the pictures of the beautiful mountains and the beautiful rivers, and saying, "Hey, that's that's a place I could probably live for a year." That mm-hmm. was the original plan. I'll just go out and be a ski bum for a year, maybe fish for a summer, mm-hmm. try to figure out this fly fishing thing that everyone does. <laughs> and then that year quickly turned into two and three and eventually eight in <laughs> Wyoming. And it just fell in love with the West and uh-huh. everything it has to offer. So did you, did the, all that time in Wyoming, did you just, you spent skiing or did you do something else? It was initially skiing. That was all that was on my mind. But of mm-hmm. course, the seasons turn as we know. And then it became this, I kind of had this infatuation with rivers Mm -hmm. and just exploring snake river down in Wyoming and all its tributaries and, and trying to figure out how to catch cutthroat trout, um, which was just a, it was such a rewarding experience. I feel so lucky to be able to, to do that in that beautiful place. Yes, it is very beautiful. Yeah. And then, so did that, so you did that, and then did that lead into some jobs in Wyoming? It did, yeah. So so I was I was really kind of, at this point, I was starting to get interested in, in the biology in these areas. And the first step was like, well, maybe I can get a job as a fisheries technician. I love mm-hmm. these rivers. So I just contacted the folks down at Wyoming Game and Fish and was lucky enough to get a job as a, as a fisheries technician. With oh, Wyoming that's great. With a criminal, uh, a degree in criminal, yeah. uh, criminal justice. Is that right? I, to this day, I don't know how that <laughs> happened. Criminology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and that was, you know, that was 
I mean, what a what a job for a young kid just electrofishing and doing population surveys on the Snake River. It's yeah. it was pretty neat. Yeah, was, sure. uh, pretty amazing to be getting paid for something like that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And then did that? So I'm I'm trying to figure out the transition from Wyoming and the, and how that happened to how that got you here. Sure. In Montana or Montana State. Yeah. So from there, it was. You know, they they kind of cut you off after two years. They don't let you be a technician forever. Um, so it was this search for more. What else can I do to kind of boost my resume? Because at this point, graduate school was on my radar as something I wanted to do at some point. Right. So I wanted to pursue a career in ecology. So, but, but you really didn't want to have to go back and get an undergraduate degree in ecology, right? That would have been another... I'm sure a couple years. I mean, some of the classes obviously would have transferred, but but you didn't have the background in in the in the ologies. Exactly. Yeah. No, I did not. Um, and it just wasn't really in in my timeline. The way I right. figured it, it was like I can't do another four <laughs> years in undergraduate. So I just started looking for more jobs, and was lucky enough to get a job with a, a local conservation district down in Jackson. So the Teton Conservation District, and that job was was more general in the sense that it was just kind of looking at protecting all the water resources down mm-hmm. there. So I was I got this great exposure to how to do water quality testing in different rivers. I had this 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 great mentor down there who really pushed data management and data analysis on me. Mm-hmm. So I had no experience with that stuff in my undergraduate degree, but he this mentor, Carlin Gerard, he was fresh out of graduate school, and he's like, if you want to go to graduate school, learn this program. It's called R, <laughs> and learn how to manage and wrangle data. So he kind of shoved me in the back room and said, like, go play around with this oh, that's program, amazing. which was, yeah. it was, it was great for yeah, me. Yeah, that's great. So um, just backtracking just a little bit before we get into uh, – to, um, your research in here at Montana State, what what really compelled you to pursue a career in conservation? So as I've mentioned, I was I was heavy into the fishing and then that, you know, that that got into me really in getting into hunting and enjoying that. And and after a while, after doing this for three or four years, I kind of started to realize that I was taking a serious toll on some of these ecological systems in the way that, you know, inevitably you, you probably kill fish, even if you're practicing catch and release Mm -hmm. fishing, you're undoubtedly, you're killing elk and deer. If you're out there hunting, you're, you're driving on muddy roads that contribute to who knows what suspended sediment loads in rivers. So all this was kind of dragging on me. Like, what have I done to kind of give back? Mm -hmm. And then it was this, this idea like, well, I should really pursue this career in conservation and and try to at least mitigate for what I've done in the past to these ecosystems. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's very forward thinking of you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks. (laughs) So yeah, you had this, um, you know, this drive to come out to the West and, and, you know, obviously from what you just said, you have this kind of background of, of conservation, whether you knew it at the time or not, you know, as you were, 
um, hunting and fishing, you recognize that that folks were managing those in such a way that you could you could um, you know use those resources and that they would be there for you uh, in in future years or for certainly for future generations. So you had that kind of mindset going on, and I'm just curious. Was there somebody that was instrumental in triggering that conservation mindset, even though you might not have had it when you were getting your bachelor's degree in criminology, it, it, or it wasn't at the forefront of that? It certainly was there. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. Um, and that, that, that mentality started at a really young age for me, and it was, it was really triggered by my father and, mm-hmm. and just observing him and how he approached the natural world. Um, I remember, well, from as early as I can remember, I can, I can relate to stories where he would be driving on the, the you know, busy interstates in, in Southern Massachusetts up through Maine. And I'd be in the back seat and he would, you know, he'd all, all of a sudden get incredibly excited <laughs> in the front seat and he'd be pointing at some raptor in a tree. <laughs> and I remember, you know, from an early age being like, well, is he, how is he seeing the bird if he's supposed to be paying attention to the highway here? So it, were, it was just little things like that, just even even in in a place like Massachusetts, seeing seeing how my father was, was so excited by the nuances that you could mm-hmm. see in nature, even in suburban Massachusetts, like I said. Um, you know, if we were hiking on a trail, he would he'd be spotting things like lady slippers way off the trail in the woods and he'd take us out there to kind of check that out um and he he was really into really into birding Mm -hmm. as well which which i thought was was so neat just to see the the complexities of these ecosystems like i said in suburban massachusetts you don't picture that but he was able to see it and it really I mean, it's your father. That if That's your right. father thinks something's cool, most of the time you're going to be into it at yeah. the end of the day. Oh, that's that's amazing. So, what kind of, if you don't mind, what sparked his interest in kind of um, um, sharing that information with you? Yeah. So he he actually went. I think in the early '80s he went up to get his degree at Dalhousie University mm-hmm. up in Nova Scotia, Canada. So he got a degree in biology mm-hmm. up there. And he, he didn't end up pursuing a career in ecology. He was kind of at the front end of um, coding for banking systems. When that was really blown up, they needed data management. And he went into a program and ended up, you know, pursuing a career as a database engineer. Yeah. But But it was it always stuck with him that that right. kind of love of nature was always there and he was volunteering for for different organizations and going on on you know different bird watches to to count pelagic birds out in yeah. in uh the northeast so that's great it never left yeah yeah right. that's great yeah and so just going back to you talking about R and him being a coder now it all starting to come together, right? You have a natural tendency. <laughs> and I never <laughs> would have expected that. You asked me five to eight years ago, if I would be concerned about data management and coding, I would have said absolutely not, but yeah, I guess it's in my genes. Yeah. That's great. Um, you know, graduate school, 
is is um, for those of that that haven't experienced it is it's a very fun time, but it's also a very challenging time. And and our profession, the conservation profession, is is quite competitive. There's a lot of people that want to do it, and to do it at the level that you're made, you know, you're a decision maker. As you alluded to, it's it's a it takes a master's degree, and certainly to get into academia, PhD, and so there's a lot of hurdles along the way from, you know, getting your bachelor's degree or even being in in high school and getting to the point where you are now. Um, have you faced some hurdles that that you'd like to share with us? Absolutely. Um, I think this this whole process of of getting accepted to a graduate program was incredibly taxing for me personally. Um, it was, you know, I probably spent five years just emailing professors all across the country. And if you've ever done that, you know that you're faced with a lot of no responses, Mm -hmm. which, which can be really demoralizing. Right. And I think, Having encouragement from from people who have been through the process was really helpful. You know, them telling me to just keep at it, just do what you can. In the meantime, keep keep sending the emails, but volunteer, do whatever you can to show that you're still interested in in really pursuing this this graduate program. So that that like I said, it was it was very taxing, but I think. Just sticking to it is what helped me in the long run. And ultimately, it took me moving here, me saying that, hey, Montana State, this is the this is the program I really want to be in. I've just got to go there and I've got to try to meet face to face with these people. They might they might know my name now from all those emails I've sent them and they yeah. can put a, you know, a picture to the face and we'll see if we can make it work. And eventually it did. I was lucky enough in a in a. A spot opened up and got the interview, and now we're we're here. Yeah, so. and and some just some things that I've been thinking about as you were you were saying that one is just I don't want to make it about me, but you know I've learned a lot as a, as an advisor when you get those emails. I used to not pay a lot of attention to them; some I wouldn't respond to. But <clears throat> through the years, I've learned just from talking to people like yourself that it is important to respond to those and, you know, to say, Hey, thanks for, for, um, the interest in our program. Your CV looks great. Unfortunately, I don't have any openings at this time, you know, kind of good luck in your career development that that's better than no response. Right. Yeah. I would, I would agree. I mean, I would have loved to see some of those emails Yeah, <laughs> just yeah. as a morale booster. Exactly. Like, at least this person looked at my yeah. CV. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the other thing is, is, you know, it's so competitive, you know, we'll get, especially at Montana state, you know, for a, for a position that I fly, I might get 80, a hundred applicants in the top 20 are just unbelievable. And it comes down to, you know, personality. And is this somebody that I, like that we can work together? Will they work with me? Can I work with them? Are they going to fit with the lab? And so showing up here, and visiting face to face and some of those things, man, that's huge. That makes a big difference. And not everybody can do that. And I understand right. that. But if you have the opportunity to do that, that just is really, 
um, another feather in the cap. And especially for you, given kind of what your bachelor's was, I mean, that's, that's, that's to be sitting in this chair and interviewing with me in our program with a bachelor's degree in criminology, that's, that's an impressive feat. So you should be proud of yourself. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. It like, you know, as you know, it didn't come easy, but if you're out there without the the necessary degrees and you're listening, I'd say just keep, keep at it because it can be done. Can be done. So kind of along this theme, do you find yourself, um, maybe not now you're a little further into your program. Um, but at the beginning, did you find yourself having to play catch up in terms of kind of the basic ecology and things like that, given your colleagues in, in the department had a, undergraduate degree, maybe in ecology or fish and wildlife management? Absolutely. So there was, I would say, a good year and a half of me suffering from this imposter syndrome, this idea that, like, I I shouldn't be here. Everyone around me is so incredibly gifted at what they do, and how, you know, why do I deserve to be here? What did I do? I don't know what the heck this person's talking about at lab meeting. And this is my colleague in the same field as me. So yes, the answer is it was, I I felt like I've been playing catch up since I've gotten here. Mm -hmm. But I will say that the, the, the process of going through those qualifying exams was totally invaluable for me. I mean, it was, it was hard and it was a long process, but being able to kind of take a step back from everything you're doing and read all the fundamental literature in the field. And, and for me, learn this stuff for the first time, really. Um, it was, it was great. So it, it took a while for me to start to feel like, okay, I can do this. Mm-hmm. But, um, it it did finally happen over time. Yeah, that's that's great. And you know, I still have imposter syndrome sometimes. You may never get over that. Yeah. Yep. Um so that's a good segue into, you know, your your qualifying exam and that's all part of your learning a lot of fundamentals of ecology and how that relates to uh your research that you're doing here at Montana State University. So can you tell us a little bit about your research um, for your master's degree? Absolutely. So my research, I do research in rivers. Um, Specifically, I look at how invertebrates, small aquatic insects can impact physical process in rivers, like how, how, like flow dynamics, for example. Um, a lot. So, well, some listeners, if they're anglers, they might be familiar with caddisflies. But if you're not familiar with caddisflies, they're just uh, uh, this order of insects. They spend their larval stage or their juvenile stage in the stream, so they're underwater. And then as adults, they emerge and they fly around the terrestrial landscape. They look like these little moths. But I'm really interested in what they do to the rivers in their aquatic stage when they're living down there. So the specific family of caddisfly I look at is they're called net-spinning caddisflies. So they spin these really intricate silk webs in the stream bed, much like a spider would spin a silk web to catch food. 
their silk webs catch organic matter and food that's floating through the river column, catch it in their web, and then they eat it. And what, what we're really interested in, my lab and, and my research specifically, is looking at how these webs can actually potentially alter the, the flow of water that's going from the river in the stream down into the, like, into the groundwater or the hyperreic zone, as we might call it. Yep. And so there's enough of these caddis flies in the stream to affect the, the exchange of water from the stream down into the groundwater? We, we think so. So there, these, these caddis flies can be in incredibly dense aggregates and mm-hmm. streams. So up, sometimes up to 10,000 of them per square meter. Wow. That's, so uh, it's a lot of these yeah. net structures that could be altering the flow of water down there. And so I'm just thinking about these nets and I'm thinking about like my shed in my backyard and, you know, I got all these old spider webs that, that hang around and are there, I was just, I was just thinking about this. Are there old caddis fly nets down there that, you know, are no longer used, but maybe they're still trapping stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And we don't, I don't know exactly how long they'll persist Mm -hmm. in the stream bed because as you know, they get, you get bed altering, altering floods that'll move huge rocks down right. the stream bed. That could destroy those kind of aggregations mm-hmm. of old nets. But if that's not occurring, those nets could persist in the stream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. And so you're studying how, <clears throat> excuse me, how the caddisfly nets are affecting the the movement of water. And and did you also say nutrients through from the from the stream to the to the hyperreg zone or, or, or groundwater? So I'm not specifically looking at nutrients yet. That would be, that's, that's kind of the next step. But I'm really just looking at the, the, this movement of water from the stream down into the hyperreg zone, which is this, it's this zone of saturation that's under almost all rivers where your stream water and your groundwater really start to mix. Yeah. And, and this zone is it's important because it's it can be rich with life it's rich with a there's invertebrates that live down in the gravels under rivers but it's also rich with like heterotrophic bacteria mm-hmm. biofilms things that are that are processing carbon ultimately mm-hmm. they're capturing this energy and potentially moving it up the food web mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I'm sitting here thinking about the, the scale that you have to measure this on. And so I'm wondering, how on earth do you measure the flow of water from the stream to the hyperreg zone? And how do you how do you capture this and, and measure the effect of these nets, thinking of how small these caddis flies are? Yeah, that's a good question. And we initially, we try to to do this in streams. We kind of just really went for it. Let's just get out in the field and see what we can do. <laughs> and it, it quickly, it was clear that this was going to be incredibly difficult to answer in a natural setting. So we've since moved to laboratory experiments to actually answer this question. And you, what we do is we build these instruments. They're called, a, they're called permeameters, which as you can guess, they measure the, the permeability of some sample that you might have. So there are these these vertically oriented PVC columns and we fill them with gravels. We essentially run water through these columns and we can get an estimate of of the permeability of the gravel. 
And then I can add Catasflash to the system and measure again, and I can get an estimate of the change in permeability in the presence of these caddisflies and in the absence. And so I was just thinking, you know, we have a steady pallid sturgeon in early life history, and sometimes the the young sturgeon don't behave in the lab like we want them to. When you put caddisflies in that container, do they immediately start building webs? Are they are they pretty good lab animals? They actually are really good lab animals. They're... Um, they handle changes in temperature really well, so they can be, you know, up to 20 degrees Celsius down to 5 degrees Celsius. And they don't, as far as I can tell in my experiments, they don't change their behavior much. Um, they'll, their goal is to capture food, and to do that, they need to build their nets, and they start building right away. Yeah. I took an aquatic entomology class as an undergrad, and I loved it, and I probably should have stuck with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Um, I'm curious, are there other animals besides the caddisfly that might be these, uh, I guess you're kind of talking about ecosystem engineers, uh, other um, macroinvertebrates at that scale that are doing some similar things as, as well? Yeah, there are. So there's the the one that's the most studied, I would say, is is the tubificid worm. It's this this burrowing worm. And there's been a lot of research with with these insects because they well let me back up so if you have a if you have a river you could have the deposition of of fine sediment in this this river and what that could do is that can really prevent the flow of water from the surface down into this hyperreic zone and that can that can block the flow of oxygen down into the zone which is really critical for metabolic processes and what these worms tend to do is they're they dig these little tunnels as they're feeding through this fine sediment, and those little tunnels in the fine sediment create these these conduits of water. So water can now move from the surface down into those deeper sediments and really deliver oxygen down there that's that's needed for these key metabolic processes. So that's that's a little bit. It's it's essentially the opposite of my research. They're looking at how these worms can increase the flow of water right, right. into this zone, whereas my research looks at how the nets can kind of mm-hmm. reduce that flux and, and, and slow things down. Through that yeah, zone. it's it's amazing to just think of all those processes that are current on such that fine scale. And when you look at a river, you know, most people don't even know that all that's going on down there, you know, and so it's just interesting. It's, it's great that you're working on that. What, if you could kind of crystal ball, what would be the most important thing that you could discover given your research? I think, I think the most important thing that we could discover is that these nets can actually decrease the permeability of these bed sediments. And what that really means for the, the larger picture is down in this zone, and you, I know it's hard to conceptualize if you've never really dug through river sediments before, but this zone is, as I've mentioned, it's really rich in life. There are all these biofilms and these bacteria down there that are capturing this carbon that's floating through the river column in one form or the other. And if these caddisflies are slowing down that water in these pore spaces by building their nets, that you're, you're pro- p- 
potentially providing all those organisms down there better opportunities to then capture that carbon mm. and, you know, aggregate it into their or assimilate it into mm-hmm. biomass and then it can move up the food chain. If they're not there, you just have water moving quickly through that zone. And as you know, water flows downstream and mm-hmm. ultimately to the ocean. Mm-hmm. So they could really potentially be increasing the retention time of rivers. It can increase mm-hmm. their ability to retain things like carbon in the in the river ecosystem mm-hmm. or retain nutrients in the system rather than just exporting them out to the ocean. Yeah. No, that's very yep. interesting. Very cool. So cast flies are 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 important not just for fish. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's amazing, right? Who to knew? think of who knew. Yep. <laughs> um uh so our last question here is is kind of a, a silly question, but we found that, that folks struggle with it. Even I struggled with it when I was interviewed. But uh, just thinking about what is your favorite animal or plant or both? Yeah, that, that is a hard question. And, you know, I'm tempted to say whatever animal or plant I'm looking at <laughs> – at the time of the question, but there's not much. I see some skulls in yeah. here. Um, but so fish, I can see fish yeah, there's, are on your fish. radar. Yep. I would say right now I'm pretty infatuated with the elk. Um, I love spending time kind of kind of tracking elk all times of the year, short mm-hmm. of the winter. But in the fall, I obviously love, I love going out and hunting them and taking pictures of them. And then in the spring, one of my favorite things to do is go out and look for their shed antlers. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, to me, it's such a cool time to be out walking around in these wilderness areas and national forests because it's like this, this renewal. It's this, right. you see the green up and the elk have since moved off their winter range and you're, you're like, you're so close. You almost feel like they were there yesterday walking mm-hmm. around just trying to get through this tough winter. And then you find a 10-pound a antler, and yeah. it's like this uh, this awesome prize. This prize, yeah. 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 Um, so I'd, I'd have to say the elk. I wish I, could, I, wish I was better at, at hunting them. I mm-hmm. wish I knew their patterns better in the fall. But, um, yeah, I just think they're, they're an incredible species. They, they live this hard life. They're being pursued by wolves and hunters and and they're carrying these, you know, this massive headgear, mm-hmm. and somehow they do it year to year and survive these these harsh, harsh, cold winters. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Well, Mike, uh, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today, and I wish you the best in your studies at Montana State University and your research on caddisflies. Yeah, thanks so much, Chris. This was a fun experience. Um, Thanks for listening to today's Voices of Conservation Science, and please uh, spread the word about this podcast.